When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Man there trying to stop Joe from getting himself into further trouble. It's not a bad ball for Pelle on the right side. It's Carlos Alberto. And what a great goal that was. Carlos Alberto. doing great and today we've got some divine inspiration to lead us in our discussion so um, my father the Reverend Dean Peters is joining us all the way from Ross Carvey Chris how are you doing I'm doing very well good to talk to you so, so excited <laughs> family Peters I'm terribly excited terribly excited yeah I guess we should start with um, your initial reaction to the game Dad, did you did it stir any memories from watching it the first time uh, it did. It's only the second time I've watched it. I watched it live uh, at a neighbour's house because we didn't have television at that stage. Um, and I remember the occasion quite well with my mother. Not sure what father was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, there's. Well, I suppose there's been images that have been used and come up over the years. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it uh, did bring back memories. And to be honest, it went a lot quicker than I expected. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I'm not a great soccer fan, and I find it quite an ordeal to watch a whole match. But uh, that went um, very, very quickly. Very how, enjoyable. How, how rare was it to actually watch like something on TV? Was TV like non-existent, or was it? No, no. I mean, my family just didn't have television. Um, uh, we were, I suppose, a bit behind behind the times 
How was the atmosphere afterwards, like after the win? Because I still remember Germany winning and it was a f- wild frenzy outside. Like people were just jumping, were drinking, were celebrating. So it was it was definitely an outstanding mm. moment. And was that just because football wasn't that kind of widespread back then? Or was like these kind of major sort of social events hadn't really kind of caught on for kind of sporting occasions by that point? I think, I think the latter. I mean, apparently the 50s and 60s... Um, the popularity of football was declining and um, but I don't think those things really uh, but I'm, I'm living on the Isle of Wight living in a small village um, the, well there certainly wasn't anything local to, to celebrate mm. I'm sure the atmosphere in London though up till the final I was reading that the atmosphere in London was very low key about uh, the thing and the early matches that England played you didn't even need to book a ticket you just turned up on the day and you got in um, so completely different uh, attitude I think well certainly from my angle uh, than would be for something today yeah I was reading from there was a report from a, like a Swedish journalist and he, he said that in London you barely know that there was a World Cup going on Whereas in somewhere like in, in Liverpool, Merseyside, where football was very, very popular, then it was like, yeah. that was that was kind of like a hotbed of, of it. But in Wembley or in London, there was not that kind of widespread national. And part, yeah. part of that um, was the social thing. I mean, it was very much um, a working class game on and off the pitch. And while, yeah, when you had London teens, it just wasn't that kind of I know it was very tribal between the different uh, clubs as I guess it still is but in the north uh, particularly in working class areas of northern cities that was where the like Liverpool that was where the real interest and passion Mm. for soccer was at the time but it's all the more interesting then that more than 30 million people watched the finals right so when there was not that much enthusiasm going on before, what changed then that suddenly everyone jumped on this train and went in front of the teddies? I don't know. I, I suppose the fact that 
And so something like this, um, very late on, as I say, not at the beginning of the tournament, but later on, yeah. it suddenly kind of got people's, um, people's attention. Um, I don't remember seeing any of the other matches. I don't remember anything very much about it. Yeah. Except that it rather interrupted the cricket season. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bloody football. Mm. And I, I, I remember listening on the radio, because we did have radio, listening on the radio to commentary, and there was no background noise because um, all, the, all the BBC outside broadcast microphones had been hived off to the World Cup. Uh, but, uh, so I mean, that was my interest. Yeah, and I think also at this World Cup is kind of interesting because it comes kind of a very pivotal time in kind of English history. And a lot of the stuff I've read about was kind of feelings around sort of new immigration to the country and different sort of minorities and stuff and how they kind of associated and viewed the teams. So like areas where there was a lot of immigrants, they would, they'd never seen sort of black footballers so much because the English teams didn't have any. And they ended up supporting sort of the Brazilian team was very popular, in, for instance, in Liverpool. Yeah. among the minority right. community because it was a right. predominantly black team whereas they well, didn't it was, and it was very interesting and obvious thing there was no um, black player on either side mm. and it, it was I mean that was the whole era of great angst and well, blatant uh, racism still in, in, in England um, and uh, I, I read somewhere that it was 1966 that um, in Euston Station, one of the main stations in London, they ended a colour bar for staff working at the railway station in 1966. There was actual colour bar. Mm. For pe- so, I mean, so, people, uh, so people of colour were banned from working at the station? At Euston Station, yeah. So, you know, it was um, very different. Uh, mm. Hello, this is Alex here from the Scoreless Thriller podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast so far, please give us a like on Facebook at the Scoreless Thriller podcast, or else follow us on Twitter. And remember to subscribe on your favourite podcast app to keep up to date with our coming podcasts. Now, enjoy the show. So I think we should go kind of uh, reel back here and kind of look at some of the, the, the sort of controversy and the... Uh, stuff around already around the tournament before it began and stuff. So I have a quick uh, little teaser question for both of you, uh, and it's how many African or Asian countries competed for the qualification for the 1966 World Cup, a tournament which had 16 teams. So how many teams not not qualified but attempted to qualify, both from the continents of Asia, Africa, and also Oceania? Okay. That's that's, 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 that's to hard. To guess. Hard to guess. Okay, so how many have competed? I mean, it was North Korea. It was the Soviet Union. If you, oh, I mean, not, it depends not, on not counting the counting the Soviet Union as they qualified through through Europe. It's through Europe, okay. back then already, right? Yeah, okay. Um, don't know. Let me guess. It was. I'd go for 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 five. Five attempted. So did the qualification process. Played games trying to qualify. Okay, the, the, the way you the way you make the question. So, like, so instance, okay, like, I should like I should go higher. I should go higher. I know, I know, I know, I know. I was so. guessing though, just because you made it sound <laughs> that it was super low, but maybe okay. 
Chris do you well, do you, do, could you could you hazard a guess? Well, because you asked the question, the way you ask the question is gonna be ridiculously small. That's what I thought. <laughs> but then I said five and he looked at me as if it was so, the most stupid think, guess ever. I, I think Leon's guess of five is probably quite reasonable, but I'll go for ten. Oh, you closer I know. Okay. So the, the correct answer is there was two. Two countries <laughs> from the whole of Asia, Africa, and also Oceania played games to qualify for the 1966 World Cup. So the, so was North. So the, the so the entire qualification for those continents came down to a, a two-game playoff between Australia and North, North Korea, Korea. North Korea. And this was because the entire continent of Africa boycotted the tournament, and they boycotted it for a couple of reasons. So the first one, their their main grievance was about that there was not a guaranteed place for an African team at the World Cup. There was the, they'd have to if they if they wanted to qualify, they would have to go through lots of playoff rounds and end up playing a European or a South American team. But the other, also more contentious thing, was FIFA had readmitted South Africa into into FIFA as a recognizing it as a as a country where they'd been kicked out ten years earlier. But they allowed South Africa back into it, and this this had kind of upset obviously a lot of the African countries, and they were they were not accepting to to play against South Africa. Yeah. But what ended up happening was so they were not, they were kind of refusing to play against South Africa. Um, but one of the um, one of the compromises that was suggested for allowing to play against South Africa. Was that for the 90s? And this is this is true. That this was kind of suggested and like uh, reasoned idea was that for the 1966 World Cup they would have an all-white team, and then for the 1970 World Cup they would have an all-black team. And it, under the under, what? <laughs> under these circumstances, South Africa would be allowed to compete to qualify for the World Cup. Who? But who had this idea? Uh, Stanley Rouse, who was the English. Uh, president of, of FIFA. So you kind of like, I think this is kind of very much, this World Cup is a very much a turning point of where FIFA moved away from the, before it was very viewed as like European and South American centric and like treating the other countries as second class citizens and stuff. And actually this boycott with, by, taken by the African nations and also supported by the Asian countries in solidarity led to them getting more spots in the 70 World Cup and eventually basically led to Stanley Rouse's, um, like his losing the presidency of FIFA. Yeah, but it seemed to be like a Eurocentric problem in general because also lots of Latin American countries after this World Cup complained about the refereeing, mm. about having not the means in London where they were, had their camps to actually train. I mean, some of their pitches where they were supposed to train, they had no mm. goals yeah. whatsoever. So, um, yeah, it, mm. seemed to be, it seemed to be a problem of Euro, Eurocentric FIFA. Yeah. And basically the idea was to kind of move the World Cup from Europe one time, then South America the next time, and then back to, to Europe. But also in South Africa, they, they were, people were forever trying to think of like uh, circumstances or different areas where they could allow South Africa into playing. And they, they were, at one point, they were going to have a, their own confederation with just South Africa and Rhodesia, the two sort of yeah. white countries in, in Africa. And apartheid, they, yeah. Oh yeah, apartheid countries in Africa and allow them to compete under you know, their own umbrella. So as well as, uh, as, well as this controversy to do with the, the, the teams, um, what I also read, which was, I thought was quite funny, so Australia and North Korea 
were technically still at, they had the problem that they were to play to compete for the World Cup, but they were also technically still at war. So there was no way that they would be able to play like a two-legged game where one time it would be in, in Pyongyang in North Korea and the next time in Australia. Yeah. So the circumstance or the situation that they led, they led to was they were going to play a two-game playoff in Cambodia where you know one, would, one, one time they would be, one team would be the home team, the second time the other team would be the home team. The, the king of, Cambo- of Cambodia was desperate that this game would be as neutral as possible and give each, you know, neither team would get a, have a competitive advantage. Therefore, he had a decree that half the stadium for each game would, be, would have to support Australia and the other half no. would support, have to support North Korea. <laughs> there has to be a weird thing as a fan, just yeah. be forced to root, to root for one side. I don't know happy now. <laughs> I don't know if some fans had to, you know, switch sides for the next one, you know, if they yeah. go to both games, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, this week I'm supposed to be for North Korea. <laughs> yeah, but also, I mean, North Korea is also like a major story of this World Cup as well, right? You know, that uh, that like North Korea qualified and then Britain, the United Kingdom had this problem that they didn't recognize North Korea yeah. as a country. At this point, and there was a lot of like not sure about whether they would allow North Korea to compete, which yeah. led to a lot of di- the difficulty with the national anthems. Yeah, which 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 we hadn't played during most games, right? Mm. I think they were played twice yeah. during the tournament, once at the start and then mm. and at, there was the, also at the, the end issue, of it. They didn't want the the North Korean flag to be raised, so so also also they refused to refer to it as they came to the sort of like. Uh, settlement that they would not refer to them as the Democratic People's Republic of North Korea. They just call them North Korea. But also, they didn't have that, want to have a situation where they would have the North Korean flag raised. Yeah. So therefore, they just had at every single game they'd have every single flag there. Yeah. So that's. <laughs> Which eventually, I think they took down too because some of the flags were wrong. I think the Argentinian flags or something they got them wrong. So. They got the flag wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Weird. Weird stuff going on. Yeah. Oh, and then there was the last thing in the run-up. Pickles. Pickles yeah, the dog. Forget yeah, we can't forget forget the dog, oh, the actually, hero. I remember that well. Oh, okay. Then, then then you yeah. brief us. Yeah. Brief us. What what happened? Well, I, well, all all I remember uh, is uh, suddenly this this uh, awful um, disaster that the the trophy had gone missing. Yeah. And that was something that uh, kind of ran in the news for some time some time and then then it was uh, found in, in, in the hedge by pickles the dog yeah um I, I, did they ever solve what what has happened who installed no, it? no they never found they never found out who the thief was they never caught him um yeah. but yeah pickles found it a couple of days later wrapped in newspapers and sure. then became the, the the icon of the world cup um Gosh. which was which was so funny um, and then the funny thing is, though, that the um, trophy, the Jules de Rimet trophy, eventually was permanently awarded to Brazil. Mm. I think it was in 1970 after the World Cup. Um, and then they stored it um, in the Brazilian Football Confederation in, in Rio. Um, and there it was stolen again, though, and it mm. was never returned. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, but also, yeah. I think the World Cup was also. I think during the Second World War that it was transported out of Italy in a shoebox because they were desperate for the for the Nazis not to get their hands on it. Yeah. So the, the history of this this trophy is quite remarkable. Yeah. But even like 
It's like the trophy is is kind of remarkable in that it looks so small. Like it they does. Look, they look kind of ridiculous with this kind of like miniature, which is like a, a couple. I don't know how how high is it? A few in, like. I, d- I don't even know, a couple of centimetres, like <laughs> yeah, so 50 centimetres, yeah. maybe. This very short thing which, you know, you barely need one hand to hold. Yeah, an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not, yeah, compare that to the, you know, the major modern World Cup trophy, which is big, healthy, golden thing. Yeah. But also, this is the, also famous for the, being the first World Cup which had a mascot. With the lion. The lion World Cup Willy. The lion, yes. Why would you pick Willie as a name? <laughs> well, it's a very popular British name. Feels so weird, so Willie. The, the lion Willie. Very British. <laughs> mm. Apparently, they wanted to sort of like, um, you know, ride the wave of sort of like cool Britain now with the Beatles and stuff, but like the music and sort of like, you know, having this new sort of like more relaxed Britain. So that's why they gave the lion the sort of like swished back hair. He's, like, he's not your traditional English gentleman. He's got that like the stiff upper lip. He, this guy's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a cool lion. Very cool name. Mm. Yeah, so that's, I think it's also like, you know, marked as like the major part of also like uh, World Cup sort of branding and sort of merchandising and like recognizable uh, symbols. Like yeah. even now, I think it's the, still the most recognizable World Cup mascot is World Cup Willie from 1966. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I think we've discussed a lot of the sort of background. There was another thing I wanted to ask you about that that had come up from watching the, from reading yeah. the game was how everything seems to have a Union Jack rather than. You know, it's, it, all the colours seem to be for, on the background of like World Cup Willie or people in the stadium with their flags, they seem to have Union Jacks rather than now, it's all like St. George's Crosses. Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting, interesting switch. Um, really, I mean, growing up, it was only the Union Jack. You never saw the um, flag of St. George around yeah. the place. I mean, I, I was hard. I mean, I was, I was aware that that was all part of the Union Jack, but it was the Union Jack. But I never saw it any in any other way. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I, maybe that's part. I mean, there's not an awful lot of um, changes mm. uh, in terms of attitudes and behaviour and so on. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't. I mean, I, when I did some more research, and, I, and you put me onto this, now I was thinking about this question. Here was you know, two decades after the end of the Second World War. What was the attitude to Germans? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was remarkably, it seemed to be remarkably good. And none of the nonsense that came into the thing in the 19 I suppose the 1980s and 90s it's just remarkable is it I mean like now whenever England plays Germany it's you know 10 German it's, bombers it's, and it's like a lot of yeah, like yeah. World War II songs yeah. are chanted and you know like the airplanes and booing the German national anthem and stuff like this yeah no no not at all not at all I mean it was I mean there was a much much I mean, very interesting that it was that it was so kind of level-headed I mean, there was apparently one headline in a paper leading up to the final, which said the German team advance on London, mm. and that was um, 
regarded by the German team as offensive. Yeah. But compare it's that to yeah. when, uh, when, when Germany was in the final of the Euro 96 in England, I mean, all the sort of British sort of male and the sun was, you know, act and surrender and like very like blitzkrieg right. kind of imagery and war stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, which was absolutely crazy. Um, and and uh, I think, you know, look, looking back at that time, because um, well, I was born 10, well, 11 years after the end of the war, it was still like, still very much in people's minds, I think, as the first you know, post-war generation. But there wasn't, obviously, there was aspects of not anti-German feeling, but anti-Nazi feeling very strong. Um, I remember we used to have quite a lot of Germans came to stay in our house. And um, I think there was a kind of sneaking respect because they actually made a lot better, better job at recovery than the Brits did. Mm. Uh, you remember, I mean, we went to, where, where, where was that town we went to, that lovely town in Germany the other, the other year? Oh, in uh, in northern Germany. What's it? Yeah. Uh, in the is north. It, is it Leipzig? No, no, no. No, no Leipzig is in the east. No, it's, it's kind of... Schleswig-Holstein. Yeah, Kiel. It's in that. No, but it's, it's smaller than that. It starts with L. Um, Lübeck. 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 Ah, yeah. the lovely city of Lübeck. <laughs> yeah, lovely place. Lovely this is the place. highest standard of podcast. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Desperately <laughs> trying to name German cities. Lübeck but, at the Buddenbrooks. I mean, after the war, that place was rebuilt beautifully as was. Yeah. It was connected. The bombing of, of Lübeck was connected with the bombing of Coventry. Um, and... Coventry was rebuilt basically with mass concrete. Yeah. And there was, you know, and the whole German motor industry and the way that took off, there was there were kind of sneaking respect for how and envy for how Germany yeah. had recovered from from the war. Which was, of course, um, also hugely due to the Marshall Plan and support from the U.S. Right pumping yeah. money into the German economy, which was like incredible amounts. Yeah. Um, so I think, so you'd expect, you'd expect it in, to be the other way around, that uh, there would have been far more anti-German feeling then than mm. in the 80s and 90s. But ironically, uh, it, it, it was not like that. I read one rather um, delightful story, Beckenbauer, went into a corner shop, I think it was in Liverpool, and asked for some black bread. <laughs> Ein bisschen Schwarzbrot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the girl behind the uh, um, counter didn't have a clue what she was on about. <laughs> what is this black bread? Oh. <laughs> handed, handed him a sliced hobbits. That's <laughs> <laughs> the only bread they had in the shop. Uh, I mean, the fact that you had Beckenbauer just wandering around and wandering into a corner shop mm. uh, and that kind of thing. I mean, that kind of thing probably wouldn't happen now. No, definitely not. Uh, they would all be in camp and that would be, uh, mm. um, that would be it. You know? Yeah, I was reading about like it was, it was very remarkable how sort of the access of all the teams was, except for the kind of North Korean team who yeah. were kind of keeping themselves and also had like less 
English or like it's like you have English or sort of like social interaction stuff. Except for this one story of this kid who was getting this, he was getting a haircut, and then the entire North Korean team came in to get their haircut, and they couldn't really communicate except for he had a Batman T-shirt on, so he gets being like lifted and thrown about by the North Korean team <laughs> shouting <laughs> Batman. <laughs> Although back to the Union Jack, like one one last time. But um, couldn't it be that since then, like the Scottish and the Welsh team started playing internationally more than they did back then, and which mm, is why well, I mean the England Scotland game was always like traditionally the the biggest game in English the English football season. Right? But had they Union Jacks then for both of the teams? Mm, that's a good question. I think, well, I think they remember they had a Scottish flag, but see, I think, yeah, you see, I think Scot- the Scotland would always have had the the blue. Was it St Andrews? Yeah. Flag? Yeah. They would always have had that. But as I say, in England, the the flag of St George wasn't really a thing. Okay. But um, but I think it gets very quickly associated in the seventies and eighties with the kind of like the rapid growth and problem in sort of English hooliganism and sort of that abroad and that imagery of the the yeah. Saint George abroad meant you know people associated yeah. with you know. Uh, England no surrender stuff and like very right wing sort of nationalistic nationalistic stuff exactly but it changed very quickly didn't it Mm. 1966 by the 70s I mean I remember when I was at university 74 soccer hooliganism was a massive thing that was that was eight years after the World Cup final Mm -hmm. not very long Uh, and then it was all the whole kind of skinhead and yeah. t-shirt with nasty slogans on. Whereas you look at the crowd in 1966, there an awful lot of them were in nice jackets and ties. It looked very civilized. But I do have a query about this: whether this is because of London, it's London rather than sort of, uh, and it's not the traditional football hotbed that you would have, say, maybe in the northern cities, where it was more of a working class thing. Whereas, like we said before, that like London, even though this tournament was extremely sort of focused on London and how England played all their games at Wembley, yeah. it was not sort of spread out as much to the other parts of the country. And in fact, this brought bred a lot of resentment in places like Liverpool, for instance, yeah. where they were convinced that they would have the semi-final of uh, the World Cup. England were due to play their semi-final against um, against Portugal. Portugal. Yeah, they were due yeah. to play it if they, if they had followed the normal sort of procession in Liverpool but they ended, they ended up that game being moved to, to Wembley and London and the sort of uh, the reasoning behind this was give that well whatever game is in, in Liverpool that game will sell out because they love the football there they, you know it's a matter of who's playing they'll all fill it out whereas in London they, 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 if they would not turn up to watch a semi-final which did not have England in it yeah so they, so they switched it round and bred a kind of a lot of resentment from that side that's, you know, the Liverpool were kind of like looked down by by the sort of English football establishment down in London. Yeah. But anyway, we've gone a lot into this background stuff, but I think we should uh, we should take a short break and then let's go deep, do a deep dive into the actual final. No previous international, no other cup final, indeed nothing Wembley ever staged, matched the glamour of this event, the final of the World Cup. The cream of the world's players battle for the honour of playing on this arena on this afternoon. Waiting in the tunnel were England on the right and West Germany. When the moment came for the players to march out, 
97,000 fans gave them the biggest roar of the competition. Welcome back to part two of the Scoreless Thriller podcast. And now we're going to discuss exactly what happens in the game in, in front of 96,000 people on the 30th of July in 1966, England against West Germany. And what did you feel about the first half? In general, well, it was very active. I quite liked it. I think it was the best match we've watched so yeah. far, especially the first half. Everyone was running up and down the pitch. Uh, both teams were kind of equally strong and there was a lot of stuff going on. So yeah, I quite enjoyed it, mm. I have to say. Yeah, there seemed to be a lot of, especially a lot of space, especially like the first half hour, you know, a very end-to-end game. Yeah. Um, Germany take the lead first, and it's it's a pretty I mean it's an annoying goal for England to concede. Wilson kind of crosses in. Wilson the left back, <laughs> not sure where he's heading. It. Very poor defending, yeah. If he was playing for Germany, it would be a perfect sort of cushioned header. By yeah, a yeah, yeah. Lay it off for his Lay it off, yeah. Yeah. Um, but Wilson sort of heads it straight to Halle, who smashes it into the corner, and then yeah. Then Germany are in the lead, but they they're not in the lead for very long. Nah. Six minutes, then Cross comes in from this free kick from Charlton. Bobby okay. Charlton. Bobby Charlton has a free kick, and he sort of just floats it into the middle of the box, and then Jeff Hurst. I, I think the German defense is. They were all asleep. Yeah, the, I think he's unchallenged. He's all alone, yeah. having all the time in the world he needs to to just hand it into goal. Yeah. I think they were ahead of the time, and they're they're just doing social distancing. Yeah, probably. <laughs> the corona thing. The corona thing. Keep it. Play it you safe. Know, the left back in, in in particular, Hodges, is sort of like marking the edge of the six-yard box rather than the striker, Hurst, who's standing in the middle of yeah. in the middle of the goal and has an easy header into the, into the corner. Yeah. What I found particularly like interesting was that when both of the teams went for the celebration, it was like a short jump. They jumped mm. up and down like once, and then that's it. And back to play. Incredible synchronicity in the celebration. That, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I, I give you that. It was a good. No, it was a good. It was a good. You know, celebration. <laughs> But still, it was no. so short. Like nowadays, it, it, it'll take at least like two minutes off the clock, when not more. Mm. But then it was, it was a very puristic approach back to the game. Let's play on, you know, keep it fair and square. That when you were a kid and you were playing sort of in, the, in for your school team playing football, and if somebody scored a goal, did do you, did they celebrate or did they, you know, was that unseemly? You know, was it like showing no, disrespect? That, that was unseemly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was always saying goal. <laughs> and um, you know, we'd, we'd come home with our tails between our legs, six nil, um, or something like you, that. You weren't but, able to reenact some Gordon Banks heroics on that. Well, I was one of those goalkeepers. I think I would fluff the simplest thing and then pull off an amazingly spectacular save. Um, so I was not very good. Really. Not very good. <laughs> Were you were you were you allowed to wear goalkeeper's gloves, or would that be kind of viewed as cheating as well? You know, kind of nefarious tactics to no, wear goalkeeper's gloves. <laughs> yeah, but when did that one start? I think I think it's maybe this World Cup, or maybe the one before. I, think, I don't think it's okay. much before then. Yeah. Because I was I was I was trying to work out from the footage whether they were wearing gloves, and then apparently they are. Okay. It was kind of hard to tell though. Yeah, exactly. So the so the first half is continues. It's one it's one one. And was there anything major else that you noticed from the first half? It flowed. Mm. The time absolutely flew. Uh, and, and it was, as Leon said, end to end action. And it was really, I mean, it was very exciting. 
I, I, I was amazed when it, you know, it was getting towards half time that mm. it had gone so, yeah. so, so quickly. I was amazed at how recognisable as football it was. Yeah. In in that like. What do you expect? <laughs> well, to be fair, it was I mean when we watched West Germany against Austria from the 1982 World Cup, it looked like they were playing a different sport. To be fair, though, it's known to be one of the worst matches ever because yeah, none true. of the teams <laughs> were actually playing the game, so I think it's yeah, hard to compare anything to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's noticeably different, but I feel like you know the touch and also then like playing short and like the mood like the interplay was recognizable and like the kind of like how they were trying to move the other team around and stuff there was a lot more i think if we were going to say okay what is the big difference of watching a game like that now or something and what they aim to do a lot of defenders just like whenever the chance is just kick it away yeah. or also like people like whenever they get the near near the goal let's have a shot from distance even though yeah. a lot of them just like trickle wide and be no, terrible. definitely a lot, lot of more kick and rush. Yeah. That's that's what I expected. But no, I have to agree with you on that one. I was I was surprised at the level of play, and also it seemed very modern. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so we go, they go into halftime at one-one. Then the second half, I think there's twenty minutes, 20, 30, 20 minutes is the kind of lull of the game. I think yeah. this is the bit where there there's one-one and there was not a whole lot of action. Nah, they kind of struggling to keep up the energy levels the pitch gets worse and worse yeah, it that rains is very, in between very noticeable yeah when the game starts you think like the pitch should be perfectly flat like it's look the same as like a modern stadium but then yeah by half time and beyond then it's you know it's They're like chunks flying around <laughs> everywhere <laughs> what is the line that very hazardous have? very hazardous what is the line from the commentator that oh yeah like? one commentator compared it to the escort race race course uh, which is uh, the famous race course which lies 30 miles southwest of the stadium mm. so for all the you know running grounds for the horses that was the that was the beautiful, beautiful very, very vivid very illustrative I was also I, I remember far worse seeing far worse pictures than that from that era mm. and if you look at some of I, well, anyone I can think of offhand some of the It starts with a corner yeah. kick, right? From, from, the corner. from the right, then Hurst receives the ball at the end, at, at edge of the penalty area, and then he just goes for goal, shoots, um, but his attempt gets deflected by Hedges, um, bounces in front of Peters, and then he just goes through with this. He hammers it. Yeah, the, the German defender is, I think, if Wilson was bad in the first half, then I think this guy should be blamed quite a lot for this one. <laughs> his clearance just sort of was completely yeah, off. Remarkable in how you know he's the shot comes in and he's sort of defending this goal and he somehow managed to float it up in the air yeah. to Jeff Hurst, the, the main England striker and goal scorer. But also, I'm not sure why there's this, this, there seems to be another German player who's decided to stay on the on his goal line. 
So he was on his, he was on the goal line from the corner. But why is he still We discussed this before. I think it's okay. He's actually quite close to where the ball hits the goal, right? So yeah, he the, might have had the chance to actually save it. I mean, he could have done, you know, the Suarez, yeah, the Suarez move. <laughs> that would have been it. Just, you know, grab it he with your hands. Grab his hands or something. But Volleyball I, it out. I, mean, I did feel like it was remarkable how he didn't come out and sort of push. No, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, I defend him in that. Yeah, but it, yeah. definitely um, a weird uh, positioning from 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 Hutkiss and we are defending yeah. but yeah how did it feel though do you remember like england being in the lead for the first time in the final mm. you know about to bring I, it home I do, yeah i mean i do remember the goals I mean, but i just remember them as in terms of you know, the ball going in yeah but i suppose I mean, they weren't particularly spectacular goals were they no a lot nah. of a lot of, <laughs> a lot of deflections sort of yeah. goal scrambles I mean, if this goal was like not a thing of beauty then i think the german equalizer is something it's else even more so <laughs> somewhat dubious yeah there is this okay I mean, so, it's not it's not even that dubious, it's a dubious though. I don't <laughs> if, if you think it was a handball then then it is but other than that i think it's not it's just weird it just bounces yeah. back and forth okay. and then so we'll set but it let's up. get to that one yeah, yeah yeah so there's a minute left germany are all going forward um jack charlton gives away this free kick and it's a very soft free kick it's a weird free kick where he's sort of leaning over the he, he leans over the, i think it's okay nowadays it would have been given to he leans yeah. too much. He's kind of on the shoulders of the player, right? I guess I think it's remarkable when you... Yeah, I guess it kind of stands out as like, why is that a free kick when you've seen sort of Nobby Styles go into... Yeah, every, fair, every, fair every, point. Fair every, point. Every tackle and, you know, every challenge re- it results in some player sort of standing up and looking a little bit like dizzy and holding their head. And there was one time, I think in the first half, the cross comes in and the German goalkeeper gets smashed. <laughs> <laughs> And he's sort of, he gets up and he's taking like the goal kick and he's still got one of his hands on his head. On his head, like minor concussion, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But but I feel like there was not that much complaining though, right? They, I, I, yeah. I, I liked it. Like They just played on, you know, you get on with on your life, game, try yeah. to try to score, make it better. Mm. But I mean, there was a lot of complaint. Like Jack Charlton is, you can see him shouting at the referee yeah. quite a lot on this one. Yeah. And also earlier, I think in the game, there was like the handball at the halfway line where he's... He's giving a lot, a lot of abuse to the referee. Yeah. Who, by he the way, was always like that. Ian <laughs> <laughs> Nobby Styles were always known as the hard men. Yeah. Well, Nobby Styles does. Nobby Styles is uh, <laughs> the five foot five enforcer at the base of the England midfield. But uh, so so they they have a free kick and Emmerich, I think yeah, I think it's Emmerich. Yeah. Sort of takes it and it hits very poorly. Very poorly hits off Cohen and then it sort of sort of runs across the six yard box and then is put in uh, put in at the at the, uh, at the end by Weber. Yeah, the old lad. And then he just slides the ball into goal. The controversy about for this one is why Chris is complaining about this is that whether it hit Schnellinger Schnell Karl Heinz Schnellinger's hand. But I think the replay makes it pretty clear it probably was his back. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I'd agree. One of the things that I, I looked up, and you can very clearly see there was a handball. There we are. Oh, <laughs> you would say that it was very clearly a handball. Well, just a bit of a stir. No, I'd, I, I'd love that. I'd argue against it. <laughs> just levels the scales as to what's to come. So, Let's move on. Yeah. There are things to come. So the scores are level. It's the last kick of the game, and then we go into extra time. One thing that I read in the, during the course of my research was that um, the England the England coach Ramsey, Ramsey yeah of course Ramsey of course 
all the England players are sort of panned out on the ground and they're like looking exhausted. And he comes round to all of them and tells them, you've got to get up, get up, look up, get up. And he wants them all to get up and to look at the German players because all the other German players are like panned out on, on the ground and getting sort of their legs. I wouldn't, I mean, massaged is probably too fine a word on it, but like smacked by the, by the, by the, by, by the physios. Refreshing themselves <laughs> yeah. with the water bucket. Very professional. Yeah. Very fr- so the idea was, you know, there was like some kind of mental psychology from, to, from Ramsey to say like, don't let the German team see that, see that you're tired. Yeah. Make them think that you're ready. It's fit as Play, play the mind games. Yeah, play the mind games and then you're ready to go. I, what I thought was interesting was the bucket that was brought up. That looked as though someone had brought it from a, from a milking shed. Yeah, from a ranch. <laughs> Just like, here, lads. <laughs> Take a zip. Yeah. Wash yourselves off and get on with it. Yeah. Just like... <laughs> the horses that drink. <laughs> very down to earth. Very down to earth. Yeah, I'm not sure quite sure what the, you know, just like... They're just like splashing water on their faces and just like, this is, you know, this is going to give me the energy to last. Probably time. just refreshing, I yeah. don't know. So, the most controversial moment of the game, and possibly, I think I've seen it, it's referred to as the most controversial and memorable... Goal in football goal history. Goal in football history. Wow, this is it. Yeah. The ball comes down the, the right-hand side, and Alan Ball crosses, crosses it in, and Jeff Hurst swivels, shoots, hits the crossbar... Bounces, bounces down and out, and they're all claiming a goal. Yeah. But it's it's not given initially, right? No, I think the Swiss referee immediately afterwards, Gottfried Dienst, um, points at the corner kick. But then uh, he has like a short consultation with the uh, linesman, um, who apparently doesn't speak English. <laughs> um, anyways, they they communicate, and then afterwards uh, he says that it's a goal. So there we go, the Wembley goal. Hmm. I don't, I, the um, one, some of the evidence that's given by the England fans that why it is a goal is because Roger Hunt, the England striker who's nearest of it, rather than him going kind of for the rebound then after it's bounced up, he's immediately reeling away with his hands up because he's convinced it's a goal. Yeah. Which is, I don't know whether that's a strong piece of evidence. I mean, something I saw on Sky and I meant to take a, um, a note, note of it which with technology um, they reckoned it shows that it did cross the line. Hmm. Uh, but then, of course, there were those other, those other studies. But I remember, and, uh, I think my parents, unfortunately, had the Daily Telegraph in those days. <laughs> and on Monday, a photograph of, of the goal looking very much like gold, but also a photograph of what uh, that was published in the German papers that made it look as though it wasn't. So, and I, 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 do, I do remember that, those two photographs. So immediately yeah. it was like... The bias in yeah. the media coverage, which is why I think we should look at science. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> would be my point. Would be my point. And so, science. So we have... Science, yeah. Scientists disagree and goals are disallowed. Um, so what, did, what does your science say, Leon? Yeah, well, I read up on this one study uh, from 1990 done by, by Oxford... Um, professors and they uh, used new film analysis technology and what they found was that the ball was actually on the line and that it was uh, six centimeters more would have been would have put the ball beyond the, the line but they, that it actually was with certainty not beyond it um, mm. that day yeah oh, see, that's, a nice, that's a nice 
But the linesman is a very dubious character in general because his record of talking about this stuff is kind of weird. Because yeah, he said this on the one on uh, at one time he said that the ball he saw the ball in the net, and then another time he says that he did not see exactly whether the ball was in goal or not, but that he was just looking at the British fans. And at the team that was already celebrating, and from this deducted oh. that it actually was a goal, <laughs> back from his which is like completely missing the point, right? Like as a linesman, just looking at the fans yeah. and telling from their expression whether it was a goal. Must be a goal yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whoever screams the loudest. Oh, not only him though, the the referee as well. I think like all of them looked like they were from a Charlie Chaplin movie. <laughs> it was it was very cute, and especially the referee. He was also so expressive in his yeah. motions and in his facial expressions. I I quite liked it. There was one there was one bit I think in the second half where there was a bit of confusion about whether it was a throw-in or uh, or a free kick, and the ball comes in and he sort of very quickly sees the balls there but he rather than kicking it he sort of like shuffles it and he does this sort of a very quick sort of Charlie Chaplin like yeah. little shuffle kicks the ball towards the person it looks like it's all on fast forward right like yeah. a, a bit too quick a bit too quick on his moving feet moving his little feet quickly yeah but the thing is also like expanding the palm because he's got those like those very baggy wide yeah. black shorts on <laughs> But anyway, it. so this this ghost goal, which we'll never really be able to decide whether they cross the line or not, happens, and England take the lead. And then right at the end, with uh, with England just a minute away from winning, and Germany pushing everyone forward, you have probably most probably like the most famous line in football commentary history. England break, and the commentator Kenneth Wolstenholm says, "And here comes Hurst." He's got, and then some people are on the pitch. They think it's all over. It is now. It's four. As Hurst goes through and smashes it into the top of the net. Now, the line that he always says, which I think is a little bit dodgy. I'm not sure I believe this from Hurst. But he says he didn't really care where he was shooting it. He was just aiming it as hard as he, hard as he could. And thought that if it went over the crossbar and like into the crowd and far away, then that would take the Germans too long to... Get the ball back get the ball back, play yeah. anyway, so he wasn't actually aiming for the goal. Oh, might be. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> if he says so, why would he yeah, not? Yeah, like... I don't know. I think it's just like a little bit. He thought like that's a good line. Yeah. Actually, you know, Such a fairy tale that's moment. The, um, iconic photos, isn't it, of Jeff Hurst kicking the ball? Yeah. The ball. And, no, that's 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 one of the things I always associate with the, with the World Cup final. That that shot of him mm. mid air. And they turn away to, to like celebrate his scores and like there's two other England players with them and they look absolutely exhausted. They yeah. look like they've you know been up for a week or something. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's like so strong, the, the image of these two guys, you know, just having won the World Cup. 
And but then what I also love was you found out was even though Jeff Hurst scored a hat trick in a World Cup final, he was not man of the match. The man of the match was given to Alan Ball, who was also given probably the greatest ever nickname in the history of football during the match by the commentator, who referred to him as Mr. Perpetual Motion. Genius. <laughs> you just get on the back of your shirt, Mr. Perpetual, Perpetual Motion. <laughs> you have to get used to the nickname a bit, but then once you've, you know... Yeah, the first time you hear it, like, Perpetual, it's weird. Perpe- Perpetual Motion. But it grows on you, it grows like, on you. Uh, yeah. I think Perpetu- he's like Mr. Perpetual Motion. <laughs> The referee looks at his watch. Any second now, it will all be over. 30 seconds by our watch and the Germans are going down and they can hardly get up. It's all over, I think. No, it's... And here comes Hurst. He's got some people around the pitch. They think it's all over. It is now. It's four. To kind of sum up, we should also talk about a tiny bit to finish up about where this kind of tournament stands in the history of World Cups and football. Because I think in many ways it kind of ends is the last World Cup final of kind of like the old era and then moving into the modern era. So like after this one, it's the last one with black and white and the next one you have colour. Yeah. It's the last one without substitutions as well. Which is ridiculous. Yeah. I didn't know that before. Like, why would you not allow substitutions? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you're, meant, you're, you're meant to be tough and keep going. Yeah, and die on the pitch <laughs> or out of exhaustion. It's a German player, I think, in the 60th minute can barely walk. Yeah. Just, understandably so. And you could be concussed, you could be injured, but you just had to keep on going. Yeah. Mm. That was the mentality. Mm. And it's also the after this one in the 1970 World Cup, you have yellow cards and red cards yeah. introduced to make it more visible and see when someone gets yellow card because there was an issue with the quarterfinal where the Argentinian player claimed to not know that he was being sent off and then they stay on the pitch to fight and there was yeah it took forever yeah <laughs> he rated it out he was gonna stand yeah, here he thought I will stay on this pitch <laughs> as long as possible I've got maybe one question it is. It can be argued whether the ball was on the line or behind it, but uh, still there was this element of human error in that instance, right? You mm. couldn't tell. Like nowadays you can tell, tell with goal line technology. Um, and the, a similar incident was when, when Maradona hit the ball with his hand, the yeah. hand of God, and stuff like this. But it's also even more like similar was in the 2006 World Cup when England against Germany, the shot by Frank Lampard, and then it clearly was like exactly. two or three yards over the line and bounced back out when they said exactly. that one. Exactly. But this didn't make it to one of the you know most known incidents in football history. Yeah. But still, yeah. But so my uh, my question is whether this, this element of human error um, is something that's essential to football and should also be preserved to some degree, mm. and whether something gets taken away when you just introduce technology that then will make these errors disappear. Yeah. I think that's the question in, in all sports who introduce technology, isn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. And so it's the same in cricket and, and, and rugby. And part of the kind of uh, approach to the game that I was brought up on was you accepted the referee's decision, whatever it was. It might be right, it might be wrong, but that's sport. Yes. Um, and and um, 
when you have everything kind of measuring down to whether it was two centimeters over the line or not, it does take that take something. Mm. The slightly kind of unpredictability of of uh, sport. But I think also the thing with the, like with VAR, like the video referee in football now, which we're kind of seeing, it's also I think beginning to affect like fans' behaviour or players' behaviour. Where if there's a goal which they're not a hundred percent sure of, whereas before they would they would see the whistle's not gone, therefore it's a goal. They're not entirely sure whether they want to like fully celebrate into it because if, if they like go crazy to celebrate it, then they like they look stupid if like in ten seconds. The, the, ref, the referee is like changing that decision. Yeah, and celebrating after the VAR decision is something completely different than celebrating yeah. directly after the it's goal is scored, yeah, right? It's a weird, like, yeah. emotion thing. Right. Yeah. So kind of the outburst of emotion is a bit lost. And then, yeah, so I think I think it's a, it's a, it's a hard thing to... Yeah. A well, difficult thing, you know, to wrap mm, your, your I mind think, around. I think, like, so in, in these major sports now, some sort of, like precision thing with technology is inevitable and I think like for the most part I think it probably does uh, it's better than not having anything what does happen though is when it kind of goes too far with like them trying to be precise you know with the offside line and they come out and there's a goal and they've got like the lines and the pitch and they're measuring whether Raheem Sterling's you know left nipple was half a half a, half a millimeter across and he was offside and then therefore we can decide the goal that's when I think it's taking something away but when it's, I think, you know, like video referee or technology, it's, it should exist solely to sort of deal with the kind of like most outrageous sort of like failure to like clearly clear, you know, yes or no stuff. That's I mean, but with goal line technology, mm. uh, goal line technology, yeah. Wembley would not have happened, arguably, <laughs> if the ball was on the line, which, uh, which, I, which I'd argue. But it's like stuff like Wembley will never happen again in World no. Cup history if, if you keep to this technology, which, is, which might be agree, agreed upon, but it has consequences, is what I'm, what I'm, what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think, it's, I, I think it's, like I say, I think something like goal line technology, I think it's, it's more fine for me because it's, it's like a very easy yes I or agree, no, yeah. like whether it's crossed it. What happens? Well, it's not. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but, but I mean, it should be right if you have the technology, whether it's over the line. But the issue is when it's like the video assistant referee stuff, and they're like looking for like five minutes after a goal, and they're like yeah. looking for a reason to rule out the goal, and you're like, come on, I want to like continue watching yeah. the game. This is kind of killing the enjoyment of that. So point. it's also the question of delay, right? Yeah, exactly. How much do you have to delay the game from continuing in order to make a decision? Because mm. then it takes out momentum. Yeah that you kind of want and that should build up throughout the match. And there already has like so many delays kind of gone into football now than compared to this game, right? When we watched this game, what thing that we noticed was how much it flowed. Like the ball was constantly in play. There was not so much like stoppages. You yeah. Know? They Playing, also, playing for time. Yeah, which I thought was, I mean, there was a hilarious moment towards the end of the second half when England were playing out. They had the, 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 the lead and they're, you know, the time was running out, going to win the World Cup and like, they played it back to the goalkeeper and the goalkeeper wasn't even like bouncing around for ages no. it took like a few seconds and the crowd starts booing so like this is a, a sportsman like you can imagine anything like that happening now or even I think like 70, in the 70s and 80s as you know football became far more cynical or like you know professionalism kind of grew and stuff like and you know, game management kind of stuff like you wouldn't see that kind of reaction then but this is kind of like still just about on the edge of sort of like old football or also like the idea of old football I think it's like maybe not less of the actual old football but like the kind of like mythology of like 
Yeah, yeah Pili summed this up quite nicely after the World Cup. He said that before football was an art form and now it became a war form. Mm. And because when there's war, of course, everything is allowed yeah. that you could do. And this relates also back to the thing that we talked about last time with Suarez, right? Like, that's the kind of thing that gets introduced. And then the mm. question is, where does it lead us? Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's was, it. There any, was there any injury time in the match? No, it's it's exactly forty five minutes. Exactly forty five minutes, and then extra time. But it was forty five. I mean, the, the, there wasn't any time to add on. No, exactly. But he, yeah, even with like the goals and stuff, right? You know, like if you see a goal now, it's probably like a minute before they start going again. Yeah. Here, I would say it was like twenty seconds. Yeah. <laughs> you score, do your one little hop, and then go back to the halfway line. But I think this is as, as good a time as any to finish up. Chris, thank you very much for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. Leon, thank you very much as always. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Network.